Welcome to Grad Chat by PhD Balance, where we talk about topics of grad school beyond academic research and that may be more difficult to talk about in our day-to-day -day lives. I'm your host, Aiden, and I'm a graphic designer for PhD Balance. Before I go any further, I would like to pay respect and acknowledge that I occupy Treaty 6 territory, a traditional meeting grounds, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, Diné, and Nakota Sioux nations. If you've missed it, we are now pre-recording episodes for release. All episodes are still available via video on our PhD Balance YouTube channel and via audio on all major streaming platforms. And don't forget to subscribe on your chosen platform to get notifications about new releases. So today our topic is PhD career transitions beyond academia, and I'm excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Holly Prescott. Holly is currently the careers advisor for postgraduate researchers at the University of Birmingham, UK, and author of the new, U new PhD careers blog, Postgraduate. She completed her PhD in English literature at the University of Birmingham, Birmingham in 2011. Since completing her PhD, she gained four years experience in graduate student recruitment before moving over to postgraduate career support. To aid this move between 2014 and 2016, she went back to studying part-time for a professional career guidance qualification. Outside of work, Holly keeps her literary interests alive as a member of the in-house company at the Crescent Theatre Birmingham and as co-artistic director of Otis Daughter Productions in London. We're so pleased to have you on Grad Chat, Holly, to discuss your experiences. That is such a unique background. I love it. <laughs> Thanks, Aiden. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really glad to be talking to you. All right. So today we're talking um, PhD transitions, post-PhD transitions. So how about we just start with uh, how did your initial post-PhD job hunt go? <laughs> yeah, good question. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and what, what I'll do actually, Aidan, is rather than telling you how my, my first PhD job hunt went, I'll, I'll, I'll show you um, through the medium of some feedback that I oh, great. interview. So just as some background, um, I went into the PhD very much because I did a master's degree and in the master's thesis kind of felt like my work wasn't done. I felt like the topic I was working on still had some legs and I wanted to be the person to sort of carry on and continue that. Um, got to second year PhD and I was pretty sure I didn't want to stay in academia. I was more than happy exploring um, other things that I could do. Um, could have explored those things in a little bit more detail, but when it came to near the end of the PhD, I kind of had a bit of a scattergun approach. I don't know whether that's that. I mean, that's an, an expression that I would use, which means I thought I liked the sound of applying for jobs in um, arts organisations, cultural organisations, kind of you know, heritage performing arts kind of sectors um, without really knowing too much about them. Mm. So, uh, um, so here's some real feedback that I got after an interview that I'd had. So I'll read it out and it says, good afternoon, Holly. Thank you for attending recently for interview in respect of our vacancy. I regret that on this occasion you have been unsuccessful. 
However, we have some feedback for you in the hope that this aids you in future ventures. Holly came across as a little too academic with regards to every, with regards to every answer seemed to be an essay. If she could be more succinct in her answers, she will be more successful. We also questioned whether she actually wanted this role due to her previous experience and ambitions, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, because maybe you <laughs> didn't like your previous experience and ambitions, like, you, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so I was a bit confused when I got this because I thought, well, why would I have been going for the job? Yeah, if you didn't want didn't it. didn't want it. Yeah. Um, and if my pre if, if, if my, uh, my previous work had been academic, if I'd wanted to carry on in that, I would have applied for academic jobs, right? Yes. But on reflection, I mean, first of all, I was very grateful to have this feedback rather than just get ghosted by the recruiter, right? That I mean, is so true, yeah. Yeah, we've got to be grateful when someone takes the time to give us personal feedback like that. Secondly, though, what I realize on reflection is unwittingly, just because it was my kind of default setting at the time, I was selling myself in interviews as an academic person. Mm. So, for example, one question in that interview I distinctly remember was, what does equality and diversity mean for you? All right. Okay. The job was to help uh, a local cultural organization to widen its audience and to bring in a more diverse audience okay so it was based in a part of the city and um, where there's great demographic diversity but that wasn't reflected in this organization's audience and they wanted to change that so what I should have done was I should have answered that question from their perspective in terms of so I had experience in engaging an LGBTQ organization to advertise a research forum that I'd started up. So I had a real understanding um, of how to um, work with community groups, to kind of raise the profile of, of, of new ventures. Those are the things I should have said. But okay. what I said was, I think I went into real detail about Pierre Bourdieu's theory of habitus. Oh. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, and I and I answer from a very academic, very theoretical perspective. So what I'm trying to get round to here is say my initial job search post PhD. I was sabotaging myself unwittingly by coming at my interviews, not from the perspective of the employer and the problems that they needed to solve, but I was still had my academic hat on, and that yeah. was people the wrong impression and it, I really changed that and started to think no actually you know in interview it's not all about me it's about what are that organization's problems and how can I help them to solve them and it, I would yeah. say my initial job search was hindered because I didn't understand that um, and once I did I think then I started to do better, but not before. I'd really started to deeply question myself in thinking, I invested all this time and effort getting really smart. Now no one wants to hire me. Yeah. 
and that feels sad yeah yeah that's so interesting and um I don't think we as students going into the workforce really know how to take that academic hat off and and say Mm -hmm. I'm just switching my whole like idea of how I'm supposed to interview when we're used to um grad school interviews or you know research positions so I think that's such a helpful piece of advice is to like start thinking with a different thinking cap on Mm. um so when you started and kind of like reflect on yourself and think do you have a default setting right same would be true for let's say someone who's worked as a teacher for years and wants to make a career change into um coaching right their default setting is teacher hat right have to learn how to put themselves across not as a teacher but as a coach so it's a similar thing it's like have a reflection and think do you have a default setting in a way that you're putting yourself across and a vocabulary you're using yes and is there a mismatch between that default setting and whatever setting the employer has yeah and and for students who might think that's a lot like to just switch it like that like you have a lot of experience helping people with that but yeah think of it in like a if you're at a conference and you're talking to the so for example I'm a, a geoscientist so sometimes mm-hmm. I go to conferences where it's very academic based and I'm just speaking like all my technical terms and stuff but if I were to go to a conference or um do a webinar for say something more like resource based like mining and stuff they're not going to want to hear all the technical jargon so i have mm. to switch my thinking cap and be talking to a different crowd and i i encourage the listeners to kind of think that way as well as if this seems so intimidating to like be applying for an industry or consulting or anything type job that that's so out of our normal realm but if you think of it as just like selling yourself to a different type of audience that you've definitely done before it, it feels a little less intimidating anyway that was just my mm. my sidetrack antidote there absolutely <laughs> so when you started your um search for jobs after your phd how did you decide what you wanted to do were there are like ups and downs or were you kind of just applying for everything mm. i wouldn't go as far to say i was applying for anything um, but what I think I was doing was um, I was going on vague category. So I thought, what kind of thing am I interested in? I'm interested in higher education. I'm interested in the arts. I'm interested in culture. Uh, I'm also interested in um, uh, kind of like community charity work and things like that. Um, but what I didn't spend too much time doing was really researching those areas. And and, and as I've already said, thinking about what were the main problems um, that that were coming up in those sectors that the jobs that were being advertised were were looking to to solve. And so what happened in the end was, um, uh, it was a friend who found um, a vacancy advertised at the university and it was for, as for postgraduate recruitment officer which is kind of means someone who um, attends a lot of events kind of across 
the country, across the world, and represents your university at like graduate study fairs, right? Trying to yeah. encourage prospective students to come to that university to do their graduate school, do their graduate degree and things like that. Um, and my friend said, I think you'd be good at this. <laughs> uh, you should apply. Yeah. And he said he'd done some work with this department and he enjoyed it. So purely just on his, him being so insistent, I applied for it. I didn't get it, uh, but the hiring manager liked the presentation I gave. Mm. And he hired me part-time to turn the idea I presented into a project. Um, and it was through that part-time job that I ended up getting my first full-time job, right? Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, so once I was in actually in some part-time work mm -hmm. I was able to start an iterative process right now I should have started this process in my PhD but I didn't so this is what I kind of advise people to do now to start this iterative process as soon as you can and what I call it is a process of thinking about if you were going to turn whatever it is you're doing at the moment into your ideal job what bits of it would you want to keep? What bits of it would you want to lose? And what kinds of aspects or activities would you want to add to it that you're not doing at the moment? So whether that you're doing a PhD, you're doing a master's, you're doing whatever it is, if you're gonna turn that into your ideal job, what would you keep? What would you lose and what would you add? And it just starts to break it down for you a little bit. And I started to ask myself that and think, well, I want to keep working with students. I want to keep working in an advisory capacity, but I want to lose the aspect of my job that was kind of salesy. Yeah, right? okay. Lose that. Yeah. And I wanted to lose working on my own a lot. And I wanted to add more time spent with a variety of people in my work, more teamwork and more work-life balance because I was traveling a lot and things like that. And that just came like a really basic blueprint for yeah. me to put feelers out and think, well, what next step would let me keep, lose and add those things? And that's what led me to careers work. So that keep, lose, add, I actually use that with people now with, with um, the, the PhD students that I work with. And I talk about it um, on my blog, but I always try to encourage people, think about this as early as you can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're going to turn your PhD into that ideal job and just think about it because it can give you some, it can give you such good clues. And also it helps you to think, okay, well, my next job after my PhD, it's not what I'm going to do forever. It's just what I want to add or lose next. And yes. I make it seem less daunting. Oh, that's amazing advice. Wow. You're really good at your job. <laughs> I'm sitting here like thinking about all of my experiences and stuff and um if I would have had that advice years ago um I think a lot of things might look different now but I've just started kind of implementing those that type of blueprint into my own thinking and it's really started to um change the way that I'm moving forward in my my career so um uh, that is amazing advice. And clearly you are just like rocking it as being a careers advisor um, in, in, in your career. That's amazing. Um, so 
um, with you using your own experiences um, and applying that to your job, um, how do you use your journey um, to help PhD research researchers now as they're looking to get into the field? Mm, sure. So, um, I, yeah, I, I have to be careful because um, in my profession, um, you mentioned Aidan at the outset, that professional degree that I went back to do part time. Yes. Uh, qualifying career guidance so obviously once I'd done my keep lose ad I then had to really get an in-depth idea about okay if I want to be a careers practitioner I'm going to have to upskill I am going to have to invest in further study and I was in a privileged position where I had the backing like the savings and some support from my employer to be able to do that and I appreciate that not everybody does but um yeah, when I did that qualification, I learned the importance of how person-centered career guidance should be. So I have to watch myself so I don't project my own uh, experiences yeah. on the, the PhDs <laughs> that I'm I'm working with because we're all different, but we all have different situations, and I can't kind of impose that on other people. But um, but what I can do is empathize uh, with with the journey. Um, with how daunting it can feel to kind of step off of what can sometimes I think feel like an academic kind of conveyor belt almost or out of an academic bubble um, and, and, and go into the kind of wild of something that feels very different. So um, I think with that, um, I, I, it, the way that I use my journey to help PhD researchers now is by helping them break that transition down into manageable steps because if you try to think about it all at once it, it's big right yeah yeah and I think the keep lose ad really helps as a starter for that but something else that I use my own journey to help people is I almost think I think the keep lose ad's useful but on its own it's not enough so I mean, let's say, for example, you're going through your PhD and you're thinking, one thing I really enjoy is teaching. I want to keep teaching. So then you think, well, I should move into a career that involves teaching. I would also say not necessarily. So as well as asking yourself what you want to keep and what you enjoy, ask yourself, why? What is it about that thing that really motivates you and lights you up, right? When I actually look at what it was about that thing I really enjoyed teaching, people could enjoy teaching for many different reasons. They could enjoy it because they love their subject and love introducing it to other people. They could enjoy teaching because they really love public speaking and standing up in front of a room and, 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 and telling people things and, and, and training people. But for me, it was, I enjoyed the actual design of the, teaching materials and the sessions so the design and the delivery but most of all it was that I enjoyed creating light bulb moments for people when a student didn't understand something and then suddenly got it yes. when I give them when I would give them some examples and then ask a question and I'd get some really interesting responses that was what I really liked and so by asking myself not just what I enjoyed but why what was it about that thing yeah then that gives you so much more useful themes to use on what you do next. And I realised, ah, so what my next work, it doesn't have to be teaching. It just has to be something where I can 
design some kinds of like sessions or materials and where I can be involved in creating light bulb moments for people. So then I think it would surely not come as a surprise to people that career guidance then that guidance and counseling and thing work with a direction that I moved in so this is where I think what my own journey does helping me support PhD researchers is by getting them to drill into not just what they enjoy but why what is it is about those things what are the themes that connect the things that you enjoy and how can you then kind of take those themes and think right where in the labor market could I run with this if that makes sense yeah that does it's almost like you you need a keep lose ad list for all of your keep lose ad items kind of yeah, it's kind of <laughs> like, yeah. what do you like but, about this what don't you like about this and and then use that yeah. to guide yeah so as well as the what I think the why is really important yeah okay cool I love that um so you mentioned like start thinking about these types of blueprints as soon as possible. Um, that can be very intimidating for anyone, you know, starting a new grad program, like how, how far along do I have to be to, to be thinking about this stuff? So is there kind of like, to you, a general guideline or milestone that a student could maybe get to that you would say now is a good time to really think about what you'll be doing after because you know, especially if you go into a PhD program a lot of universities will have it formatted where the first year or two is barely even dedicated to like your project um, but rather a lot of like literature review and stuff so when you're starting your PhD program you might not even know what you want to keep loose at so is there kind of like a milestone or a general guideline timeline that you would you recommend for students to really start considering this? Yeah, so I think it's very different in the UK because we don't have any like coursework or oh, okay. exams or, or things like that as part of the PhD. You sort of just go straight into your project, your thesis. Okay. And the PhD full-time would probably typically take somebody maybe four years if, if they have a writing up yeah I did mine in three um yeah so so I think um the researchers that I work with probably have a different timeline to say North America Canada but overall I would say you know it does sound cliche to say start as early as possible but I think a useful mindset is right so how can I put this? Um, yeah. So I think a lot of people can fall into a trap of thinking that the PhD is something that they're doing now and that's happening now. And then career is something that comes after it. Later. Yeah. Yeah. Later. At the end. Yeah. After. Right. But if we were going to say, right. Let's think about your transition from master's to PhD, right? Or from your job to your last job to PhD. Were those two things completely separate from each other? And they probably weren't. Yeah. It's likely that your ideas for your PhD grew out of your master's program. Yeah. 
out of your master's thesis or out of the work that you've been doing if you're coming back into a program after you've had a career maybe mm-hmm. I know for me that was true you know my PhD grew out of my master's thesis then it was doing my master's where I came into contact with the ideas and the theories and the uh, and the people um, that led me in the direction that I did my PhD absolutely Why- so why not think about career in the same way? Right? Yeah. And something, that's something you can start in the beginning. Um, yeah, exactly. So just like a PhD is something that emerges out of a master's program or emerges out of a job you've been doing. Think about career as something that emerges out of what you're doing now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it emerges out of the things you're trying out now. It emerges out of the people you bring yourself into contact with now and what they do. Yeah. What yeah. fields do they work in? So then you, from that, you can start to think about, oh, what would I want to try? What might I want to try next? What might I want to learn next? Yeah. It's like you would if you were continuing from master's to PhD. Yeah. You, the same kind of things you can think about to figure out what it is you want to do next so all I'm trying to say there is I I don't have a a timeline for you because you know I appreciate you've probably got listeners in many different countries Mm. where program is structured quite differently but my one piece of advice would be that don't think about the PhD and the career as these two kind of mutually exclusive things think about it like that like just like the PhD grew out of what you've been doing the career grows out of what you've been doing as well. So there's really no start and end point. Your career is always happening. And, it, yes. and, and it's being aware of that. It's, it, it, it's, it's being self-aware, being aware of that, reflecting on that, and therefore thinking, well, how do I want to prioritise the things I say yes and no to, to, to move myself into the directions of what I might want to try next and what I might want to learn next. Yes. So what I'm hearing is there's no timeline. Start as soon as possible, but start smaller. You know, you're, Hmm. you know what you want to do when you're going into this project, but in your first six months, what do you hate about it? Maybe you hate reading all these papers. Okay. Well then maybe a job that involves you doing a ton and ton of research Um, like literature review type research isn't for you maybe you hate doing certain type of field works or or doing certain type of projects then that's you can slowly start like chipping away your keep keep loose ad list and Mm. growing it from there Mm. and then if you realize the things you are more drawn to and that you do get your energy from and you find yourself kind of doing more of that than the other stuff then you can start to seek opportunities where you could take that further. For example, mm-hmm. if you're really enjoying things like report writing and things like that, then maybe you could seek um, a policy internship where you'd be writing policy briefings and try that skill out in a different setting. So that makes sense because mm-hmm. so the earlier you're thinking about this, the earlier you're then able to spot the opportunities that let you take that enjoyment further. And the more you're then actually trying stuff out, low risk, yeah. whilst you're still in the programme, and then you've got loads of evidence then to, to base your, 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 uh, your, your, your decision for your, 
your next steps. Great. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, especially the idea of, of your career and, and grad school being not mutually ex- exclusive and, or yeah, <laughs> that they are blended in a way when I, and when I think about career after grad school, I think, oh my God, it's this huge, like next leap, but really it's, it's taking the next little step and little larger step and little larger step that we've taken ever since, um, attending university at all you know mm. you've you've decided on a degree you've written an honors thesis you've applied to masters etc so it's just taking those little steps and I think it's important to remember that that uh just kind of like bring bring yourself down from it and and think about it smaller so mm. you you mentioned this earlier about um selling yourself and um presenting and selling yourself to a different type of audience so how how would you suggest that PhD students sell their skills to in employers outside of academia uh, when all they know is an academia background or their resources or there are certain like skill sets that you might recommend or any type of advice in general? Hmm. Well, I would say that by becoming an expert in your academic discipline, you have learned the language of that discipline. And if you've learned the language of your discipline, you can learn the language of another, right? Okay, yeah. So, 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 so basically, you know, you by, by doing a PhD, you have, I think you have become good at, okay, right, so let's say we've got, we've got someone um, who's doing a PhD and they're doing it in, I don't know, um, uh theoretical physics so they've become really good in speaking the language of theoretical physics right and they can speak to um other people other physicists um and 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 they understand that language and they're really hot on that and again yeah it that's like having learned a language of an industry really and it's Mm. just applying that to other industries If you've done it once you can do it again i guess is the encouragement i would give to rather than to think oh my word no all I can do is what I know yes it's like well no you've learned one language you can learn another especially if you've done like an interdisciplinary PhD so let's say you started off in physics but then you moved into maybe kind of like microwave engineering and then you went more over to the electrical engineering side and you've been flexible there you've probably learned multiple languages of multiple disciplines so it's a exercise really so people can be very skeptical about the language we use here when we say sell yourself Mm -hmm. I try to move away from that because I think that can actually be quite daunting for people so instead I think right how can you understand what different audiences need and how can you tell a story about yourself that presents you as someone who can meet those needs right so it's emotional intelligence almost really Mm -hmm. understanding what does the you know who's my audience where are they coming from and what are they going to be most interested in Mm -hmm. because sometimes what you want to say about yourself and what academia has maybe trained you to think is the most interesting and the most and, and the best bits of yourself 
may not be what the employer thinks. Yeah. <laughs> are, are the, are the best bits. So it's, it's, it's understanding that really. Um, so I think you've got to, in order to understand the needs of your audience and talk about yourself in a way that is in tune with those needs, I think, first of all, you need to know what you have to offer. You need to really think about what are you good at? What are your interests? And what are your best pieces of evidence for that, right? Evidence, yeah. Yeah. So once you've worked that out, those things should resonate with the roles you're going for. Because if they don't, then there's probably a mismatch. Right. Fundamentally, you got to reflect on what do you have to offer? And what is it? What parts of you do you want to bring to to the, the work you'll do next? But then next, just as importantly, you've got to consider the employer as well. What are their needs? So every job that comes up, comes up for a reason, right? It might, for example, um, a department wants to launch a new course. It might be like the example I gave that a cultural organization wants to diversify their audience. It might be that a company wants to um, research and, and launch a new product or support a group of people better, or break a new market, or whatever it is, right? So you need to be able to understand what those needs are. And then selling yourself is the you showing the employer how you can help them solve those problems. So it's more about them, really, than it is about you. I see. Yeah. Or, Or it's equally. It's as much about them. Yeah as it is about you yeah you're not just talking about all of your greatest attributions and and things um but how can those be of help to the company and in in a way of like how would they benefit from you not how are you just going to be a good employee you know (laughs) and and I also so for example you know let's say for a um let's say you're wanting to move from say doing a a kind of STEM PhD to let's say working in an area like patent law. Um, So you could tell the employer, you could say, um, you could put on your CV um, the title of a journal article you've published and then the name of the journal. Yeah. Then then the employer could say, great. How is that gonna help you deal with our clients? So instead, you then get um, um, you then get sort of um, so um, worked on problem X um, and, uh, and uh, submitted um, uh, uh, successfully uh, submitted manuscripts to an academic journal um, for publication, uh, demonstrating excellent command of written English and exceptional attention to detail. And then they're like, oh, great. Those oh, yeah. <laughs> need to be a successful patent attorney. Yeah. And you've done it to the level where you've managed to get something published in this internationally acclaimed. Yes. Great. So you see there, it's like you're in the first version 
um, uh, that we talked about just putting the journal paper and the journal name, you're kind of assuming a lot of prior knowledge from the reader of your CV that they will understand what that title means, what that journal is and how prestigious it is. Whereas in the second version, you're interpreting that journal article that you've done and you're extracting from that some things it shows that the employer is going to be interested in. So that's just yeah. an example there about the difference between things that... Um, Things that when we're talking to an audience speak for themselves, but things that when we're talking to industry audiences need unpacking. Yeah, I definitely understand that. I think um, I'm still, for lack of better words, um, slightly traumatized from when I did a presentation during um, my master's and uh, so a little background on me, I, I did my master's and then upgraded to PhD. And um, at the time of recording right now, in November, December, I am mastering out of my PhD and quitting that and pursuing a different career altogether. But um, okay. when I started uh, near the end of my master's and was transitioning to PhD, I kind I had a idea of like the project and everything, like it was all the same project that I was going up to PhD for. But I had a very technical or, or like academia sense of it, like this is important for these reasons of, of other academic research. And I remember doing a presentation and one of the professors in the audience kind of asked me, like, um, he didn't say it exactly like this, but he may as well have said, why does it matter? And, mm -hmm. and that question has just haunted me because I mean, in that moment, I was doing a presentation on my research to the students in my department. It wasn't supposed to be for any other type of crowd, but that has really followed me through to other presentations, like the antidote I was telling you earlier, with going and presenting to like a very resource-based geoscience uh, community. All they care about is like, how much can we get from this type of deposit why why does groundwater matter for this type of deposit like stuff like that and here I am presenting on my research that is not really anything to do with like mining or any type of like hard rock geology but I'm presenting to a mineralogy and mineralogical community that's what they care about so mm. I'm trying to like sell myself um quote unquote sell myself to them so that I don't get that question, why do we care at the mm. end? And, and then at the end, they, they say, wow, that was really useful in understanding your research as it applies to our interests. Mm. And I think when you're applying for jobs, you have to think of it that way too, as students, we have done all this research, but um, how can that help this, the, the fields that you are wanting to go into? Mm. And there, Aiden, you gave a great example of what I said earlier, which is you've learned to speak those different languages yeah. in and, that and you've done it, previously. I, so I had to was forced to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I didn't want to be caught uh, having that type of question in a setting where um, it would be like embarrassing. Or, you know, if someone mm. asked me that during that presentation, I would have been like, oh my God, I would have been stumbling. And um, so. <laughs> for students who are like looking to, oh my God. <laughs> so for students who are looking for like how to change up your um, 
skills of presenting, like I encourage you to say like, what if I went and presented at this, this conference right now, how would I change it? Um, or if you're doing like a webinar or something, also attending webinars is really helpful in like learning different types of languages that different sectors use. Um, if, because yeah, everyone kind of has a different one, but anyway, that's off topic. Um, but if I ever was gonna kind of just wrap this one up, what I would say, so let's use those examples. So, so going to the example I used at the start when I was in that interview, um, answering the question about what equality and diversity means, or if you were in front of that audience of people um, who, who were into mining, right? And you were, and let's say you were just like you say, talking about your research, but in a theoretical way that didn't mean anything to you. It's kind of like, right? You're thinking about, it's like you're speaking to an audience that really want hats, right? They yeah. really, really want good hats. That's their bag. They really want to buy a hat, right? But if you don't adapt the way you speak to them, it's like saying, hey, look, I know you really want hats, but oh, I'm a shoe. Look <laughs> who I am. I'm a great shoe. But <laughs> then they're that. like, look, we don't care about shoes. Yeah. We, we don't even wear shoes in this industry. We want hats, right? So don't be the person that tries to tell people what a good shoe you are if your audience actually want hats. I love that. That feels like the most perfect thing to end on too, as we wrap this up, because like I'm trying, you know, I can only give as many personal antidotes for students to try and relate to. And you are an amazing careers advisor who is giving so much amazing advice during this episode um, that has me like rethinking everything, but, but really, yeah, don't be the shoe when everyone just wants a hat. <laughs> exactly <laughs> how can you how can you make this shoe into a hat <laughs> yeah yeah exactly or how can you actually just let's leave the shoe aside and take what I learned about making that shoe into making a great hat yeah yeah love it all right before we end here um is there anything else you'd like to mention talk about promote Sure. So um, the main thing is my PhD careers blog, um, where I cover a lot of the things we've talked about today, including the keep, lose, add um, structure, working out your next steps, um, uh, transitioning into um, think about moving from academia into other sectors, uh, selling your skills and all kinds of things like that. It's called Postgradual and you can find it at www phd-careers.co.uk great yeah awesome all right well thank you so much holly i really appreciate it so uh to wrap this up this has been grad chat by phd balance our episodes are now posted simultaneously on our podcast and youtube channel saturdays at 3 p.m eastern time to find our podcast episodes, just search Grad Chat on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can connect with PhD Balance on our website at phdbalance.com or on social media on Twitter and Instagram at phd underscore balance. Until next time, have a great day, guys. <laughs>